So for the balance of time, then, we've got uh, five speakers. So, uh, so in, roughly in the order of the speakers, we'll have Bryant Cutler, Matthew Eastland, Jonathan Carnell, Mark Crosby, and then Stephen Eastland in that order. Is thy heart right as my heart is with thy heart? Amen. Come, let me show my zeal for the Lord. I would like to touch briefly, hopefully, on one of the five points of, um, or one of the five um, inputs. And the, the input I would like to focus on today is that of friends. <clears throat> they will make or break you and your children. And I have to give credit to our brother Jonathan because 99% of this is his work. And I'm very thankful for him. And we are blessed to have the man of God and the website and his, even his computer with all of his information that he has. It took one little sentence and he had three outlines for me. <laughs> and uh, I'm very thankful for him and I pray the Lord would bless him for his efforts. Amen. Why the concern about friends? We want to climb the spiritual ladder of success as a Christian, just as others spend many hours and work and planning to climb the carnal ladder, carnal ladder of professional success. We all know, because we all have jobs, that we spend a lot of hours and time and research to make our jobs what they are and to be successful and pleasing to our masters. In the same way, we want to climb the spiritual ladder to help one another in the fear of the Lord and in service to Him. And so having spiritual Christian friends makes a big difference. Christian excellence is our goal. Not mediocrity, but average Christian friends will ruin you. Average Christian friends, not average friends or worldly friends, average Christian friends. We cannot accomplish any or all of these objectives without wisely managing our friends. Managing our friends means making special efforts towards some friends and less efforts towards other friends that might be outside the church or even inside the church. And I'll get to that later. <clears throat> God made it easy for Israel by telling them when they went into a land, annihilate them. Just wipe them out. They shouldn't be there. And don't, don't do anything that they say. The example that is here for, in Scripture is um, when the Israelites went in to, across the sea of the Philistines, and he said, Make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee sin against me. It will surely be a snare unto thee. And that's out of Exodus 23. You will never rise above your friends without a miracle, which it can happen, but we can never presume on such a miracle. A Christian co closely associating with carnal Christians will be a carnal Christian. Guaranteed. A Christian closely associating with contemporary Christians will lose conviction for truth. You cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit choosing spiritless friends or spiritually dry friends. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And one of the ways that we do that is with our friends. The Holy Spirit will be grieved and quenched by your choice to be around carnal worldlings or carnal Christians. 
Friends can be a good thing. If wise men are your friends, they will pull you up by their wise words and lives. Proverbs 13, 20, He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Paul exhorted the Philippians to observe and choose those saints most like him. Philippians 3.17, Brethren, be followers of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. A great friend, by the Bible's definition, even of your father, is worth protecting. Proverbs 27.10, Thine own friend and thy father's friend forsake not, Neither go into thy brother's house in the day of, the, of thy calamity, for better is a neighbor that is near than a brother that is far off. Right. So as some of us know, we've left family, blood relatives, to be here with you, to be friends in the Lord and in service to one another. You guys are more close to us, and we, I to you, than um, those blood relatives of ours. And we can go to you in the day of calamity because you guys are with on the same page and in service of the Lord. Right. Friends can also be a bad thing. Blessings come on those who choose their friends carefully, rejecting worldlings. Psalm 1, 1 through 3, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. And I'll stop there for a moment to comment. The counsel of the ungodly, or the way of sinners, or the, the seat of the scornful, not only are those, does that include worldlings, it also can include carnal Christians, because carnal Christians are also scorners and sinners and ungodly in some ways. And so are we at times, but it's the general um, direction of, of their lives. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. How many carnal Christians delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. Not many, and that's what makes them carnal Christians. But as we as brothers in the Lord should be encouraging one another to um, delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it. Because then we'll be as a tree planted by the rivers of water, bringing forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Friends can make you prosper, or friends can make you fail. This is why it is important. What is real friendship? Real friendship involves rebukes and wounds as, plo- as opposed to flattering fun. Right. Proverbs 27, 5 through 6. Open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Good. An enemy doesn't necessarily mean somebody that you're an enemy with. An enemy is anyone who does that which is opposite of rebukes and wounds that are there to build you up. Iron sharpeneth iron is the next, or is down here in the bottom of the list. I'm not to yet. But as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Real friendship has a common bond and purpose, fear, love, and faith in God. First uh, Samuel 23, talking about Jonathan and David. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David into the wood, and strengthened his hand in God. He went to his friend and companion in the Lord to strengthen himself in God because he had a good friend. Friends have a purpose, and it may not include fun, listening, or understanding. Just because someone is uh, is understanding and listens to you or has fun with you does not necessarily make them a good friend. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 9, two are better than one. 
because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe unto him that is alone when he falleth. <clears throat> For he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat, but how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand. And a threefold cold, sorry, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. If we have brothers in the Lord to stand with us, it'll be easier for ourselves. So yes, it's a selfish desire, but it also, in the same way, will help our brothers to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil and against the world. Real friendship is constantly sharpening one another like iron sharpeneth iron. Said that already, sorry. <clears throat> so what is a real friend? David chose his friends from those that feared God and kept his commandments. Psalm 119.63, I am a companion of all them that fear thee and of them that keep thy precepts. Paul said the ones in a church we ought to follow and watch are like him. In Philippians 3.17, Brethren, be ye followers of me, and mark them which walk so, as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Notice in, in that verse, whose God is their belly, their belly worshipers, those who worship according to feeling and not truth. It's talking about Christians, carnal Christians, not worldlings, worldlings necessarily. They're minding earthly things, which makes them worldly, but they are Christians that are carnal. <clears throat> Should we look for perfect friends? Why not? David directed us to do so in Psalm 37. Mark the perfect man and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. Going back to the song and going back to what Adam said, peace is our goal in the church and as brothers in the Lord and in unity. Do you mean I can only have friends, have godly, spiritual, and wise friends that will help me to be a better Bible Christian? And I'm quoting Jonathan, duh. <laughs> you are getting the message. <laughs> I was going to delete that, and I thought I'd leave it, because I know you guys know our brother Jonathan and his intentions. Friends agree on important issues, for two cannot walk together if they disagree. True. Amos 3.3, 3, can two walk together except they be agreed? Amen. No. There is no agree to disagree in friendship, real friendship. There may be in worldly friendships, and we have to have those friendships for work and other things, but in friends that are real friends... There is no such thing as agree to disagree. That's not friendship. So how should you and I be concerned? Parents are obligated by God to train children, including picking and rejecting their friends. Yes, picking your friends, children. Children are too foolish, immature, and inexperienced to be able to pick their own friends. Wise husbands will monitor their wives' friends as well in order to nourish and protect them wisely. A wife's friends will either improve her as a Christian wife or divert her drive to virtue. Friends are one of, five, uh, one of the five great inputs. Bible reading is number one. If you skip any of these inputs, you're going to fail in some of the other inputs. Bible reading is number one. Prayer, friends, what movies you decide to watch, if any, and the music that you listen to. Right. All those things, each of those... Five different things will lift you up or tear you down. 
Do not be so gullible and lax that you assume conservative organizations afford great friends. And he's got a list of uh, a few of them here. <clears throat> because you send your children to a Christian school does not mean all students qualify. Because you send your children to a homeschool association does not mean they qualify. Because you go to a conservative church does not mean all attendees and or members qualify. I mentioned this before. We know this because Paul speaks about it, that there are those in the church that are not living godly lives or they're living disorderly or they're, um, they're there and they will tear you down if you, you know, don't help build them up as well. Even in a peaceful and unified church, parents should wisely select children's friends with the same discrimination they qualify church members for marriage and other things. Like marriage, you want to aim as high as you can spiritually in selecting a friend. Like marriage, children and youth are not wise enough to pick the best friends. Weak children need strong friends, and faulty children, spiritual friends. Romans 15, 1 and 2. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Lest every one of us please his neighbor, let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Right. So if you, if you view yourself to be a strong brother then build others up. And if you view yourself to be weak, then find those that are stronger to build you up. And then Galatians 6, 1 and 2, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If the brother's overtaken in a fault, build him up, restore him, forget it, forgive him and move on and help encourage him and build him up so that he can continue. Evangelism is an entirely different thing. Jesus sat with sinners, repentant and listening sinners. Don't use the evangelism crutch to justify who you have as friends because they will tear you down. They're carnal Christians by nature because of you know where you found them. I'm guessing you don't go to the brothel and look for people to evangelize to. You're looking for some people that have a fear of the Lord, but be careful in your evangelism. Doesn't mean don't do it. Be careful how you associate with them. Friendships depend on verbal exchanges, whether by words, phones, texts, emails, and notes. So parents must be vigilant and diligent to monitor all such forms of communication. And thank you, Lord, for his providence, that hymn that we just sang, number 218, 218 and 117 have been favorites of mine for a while. But verse 3, You may value the friendships of youth and of age and select for my comrades the noble and sage. And that's because of what it continues to say. Those are friends in the world, the noble and the sage and, and those that are uh, good men on earth. We can have those as our friends. But the friends that most cheer me on life's rugged road are the friends of my master, the children of God. Amen. That's all. Thank you. I have a lot of ground to cover and very little time, so I'm going to give you uh, the first passage already to turn to, which is Romans chapter 1. I picked that particular song, uh, looking for a hymn that's relevant to what I want to speak about, and I want you to remember the context of the words that inspired that song. When Moses asked, who is on the Lord's side, who are they going against? 
those close to them, those dear to them that were worshiping falsely. I pick that because what I'm going to talk about is something that's going to be close to your heart in some cases. I want to recall to you a sermon that was preached originally in 2002. So yes, I was 16 when it was started and it continued on for several months. Uh, That's half of my life and part of it has stood out to me since then and I want for those of you who were not here to hear it, who have not heard me mention it two previous times that I've had the opportunity to, I want to bring this sermon to your attention, these sermons to your attention, because they're needful for us. The sermon series is called Forgotten Sins. Yep. It speaks about sins that are listed in Scripture, that are so easily overlooked. And they're easily overlooked for two reasons. One, because by nature we all have sinful hearts, And so we think about the big sins. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't stolen from anyone. I haven't committed treason, any of these horrible, horrible sins. But there's small ones that are listed in Scripture, or what we would call small. And I want to remind you that so much as eating the fruit from a tree that God said not to condemned all of mankind. God doesn't care about what we think the size of the sin is. One sin is sufficient. So I'm going to touch on what may seem like small sins. They are so easily forgotten because of that. And then secondly, because in the age in which we live, many of these things are not considered sins anymore. In fact, many of them are endorsed as good, as proper. And I want us to bear them in mind. Now, I'll tell you, this is one of the easiest, easiest outlines to go through as a family or as an individual. It's one of his shorter outlines. It's only 70 points. And they're all easily categorized and set aside. Uh, He's going to take, in the outline, he takes words from the Bible, words that we do not frequently use, and he defines them for us. He gets a nice dictionary definition available, and then he puts them in context of Scripture and shows us how they are wrong so that we can apply ourselves to them. I only pick three, three out of 70 all-told points, 65 forgotten sins and five forgotten virtues. So I'm going to go to the first one now, and again, these are... Most of us will not have used these words, so I am going to help define them for you, but these are sins that God cares about. The first one, found in Romans chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 31, and this is in the middle of a list of sins. And in this list of sins are some pretty heinous sins, but there's little ones in there that we may not know. Verse 31, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. The word is implacable. What does that mean? That cannot be appeased, irreconcilable, inexorable of both persons or feelings. This means that you can't let things go. One of the most simple, I don't know if it's just a Southern expression or if everybody else might know it, but the expression that comes to mind for this is you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. It's people who cannot be pleased. And it has to do with actions and also people. So scriptural synonyms for this are froward, odious, and holding grudges. Are we implacable? What does God tell us to do? God tells us that we are to be gentle, easy to be entreated, Mm -hmm. cooperative, Mm -hmm. merciful. Mm -hmm. Yet do we hold implacability in our hearts? Can we let anything or anyone go. 
Who is the person that has offended you the most in this world? Who's done the most harm to you, to those you care about, the one that you can't let go? Well, in the New Testament, Jesus compares that. He owes you a hundred pence. You owe God a thousand talents. You have no way to repay God what you've done to him. How dare you, when he's shown you that kind of mercy, not show mercy to others? There is a very simple scriptural example of implacability, and he's already been mentioned today, and that man is Ahab. In his life, he showed twice that he was implacable. And I ask, the man is a great sinner. He's noted for his great sins. Do you want to be like Ahab? The first time Ahab was implacable, it's already been mentioned, he wanted a piece of land. He wanted a vineyard that belonged to somebody else, and that man didn't want to sell it to him. And what did Ahab, the great king of Israel, the leader of men, do? He went home, he got in bed, he put his face to the wall, and he refused to eat. He sulked because he just couldn't be pleased. Is that the behavior that we demonstrate? It comes up here from time to time. It comes up here. If no one else is going to admit to it, if no one else is going to raise their hand or say amen, it comes up here that we all hold grudges. We all hold sinful inclinations. The second time is even more obvious is Ahab knew that there was a particular prophet that never said anything good about him. And so when that prophet came before him, he said, well, what does God tell you to say? And the prophet said something good. And Ahab's immediate response was, well, you're obviously lying because you never say anything good about me. And so then the prophet told the truth, which was that he was going to die. But that's Ahab. He, he wanted to be angry. He didn't want to forgive. Do we hold that? Right. See, it's perfectly appropriate in the world today to keep your enemies, to keep your grudges as long as you want. What harm does it do to anyone? Well, it harms you. It harms your own soul by tearing you down, and it harms others because you don't show the mercy that God expects from you. Right. Implacable. We have a new year. Well, we start it by thinking about a word that we usually don't. When you feel that grudge, when you see that face that you just can't stand, will you let it go as God expects you to? Right. Our second one, if you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Again, I got a lot to cover. I'm probably going to run a little bit over time, but I want, I want to give you three easy ones. And I'm sorry I didn't make this clear already, but there's, there's a reason I picked these three is looking at the year of 2016, these are things that I have watched all around us. We have watched people who are implacable. It wouldn't matter if certain politicians picked every single person that they wanted picked and every single policy they wanted picked, they'd hate him anyway, or her anyway. It doesn't matter, they were determined to be angry. Is that us? So, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 20 through 21. Paul speaking to the church of Corinth. For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would, and that I should be found unto you such as ye would not, lest there be debates, envyings, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults. The word is tumults. And lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. Verse 21 is there because we have fornication, sexual sin of a stronger nature. 
tumult listed with that? What even is tumult? The definition of tumult is commotion of a multitude, usually with confused speech or uproar, public disturbance, disorderly or riotous proceedings. Other scriptural synonyms, and actually some of them are found in this passage, are swelling and sedition. 2016, if you haven't looked, has been a year for a great public outcry, great public distress, protests, marches, things like that. What does God have to say about those? God calls them a sin. Christianity is not a religion of protest in any capacity, and especially not in the church. God expects all things to be done decently and in order. God expects all things to be done with respect towards authority. So even if there's a good reason, even if there's a good cause, God doesn't want to put up with tumult. Scripture mentions it several different times. To put it in context, we can look at uh, Matthew chapter 27, just so you can see it in context to understand what a tumult is. And the funny thing is, if you look up the word, it is pretty much always associated with very sinful activities where a crowd forces something wrong on an authority. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 24. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, this is at the trial of Jesus, where Pilate has said he's found no fault in him, he's not guilty, but rather a tumult was made. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. A crowd banded together against the man that was their ruler, forced him to commit a crime, forced him to wash his hands of innocent blood. Now, you want examples of tumults today? Union strikes? Lots of noise, lots of fury, means nothing. Public protests, and again, especially in the church, there's no place here among us. We are a unified body. We are brethren. There's no place for cliques. There's no place for little associations or groups trying to force their own agenda. We are a body together in Christ. None of these things have a place. Let me give you a reason, an easy example of what you can do instead. Because again, some people, it's easy to think, but their cause is good. Their cause is just. There's bad things happening. So this crowd getting together, forcing something through, that, that must be meaningful, right? My answer to you would be in Proverbs chapter 25. Forget making a tumult, forget getting together in a big group to try and force something, because in the end, again, every time you look in Scripture and something gets forced through by a multitude, it's wrong. Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 15. By long forbearing, a prince is persuaded, and a soft tongue breaketh the bone. Forget making lots and lots of noise. Forget making loud arguments and banding people together. Forbear. Put up with it, even if it's for a long time, and obey. And give a soft answer when the time comes. That's what persuades a prince. That's what breaks the bone of someone who was standing against you, is to be quiet and to do it God's way, which is orderly. So there we have tumult. And then finally... And this one, this is one of the ones that, again, being 16, I remember this one particularly. It means a lot to me. Turn to 2 Timothy 3.4. This is one of the two that comes to my mind immediately when I think of this sermon series. 2 Timothy 3.4. 
And again, this is the description of the perilous times. It's in the middle of another collection of horrible sins. And I'm, I'm just going to start at verse 1 just so we can get the context again because I don't, want you to, I don't want you to downplay this. This is part of a list that God says is abominable. This also know that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, Blasphemy was a crime punishable by death in the Old Testament. That's significant. Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, which is our word, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. To be high-minded. Having or characterized by a haughty, proud, or arrogant spirit. Synonyms in Scripture are pride, conceit, and vainglory. Are we high-minded? Are we proud? Are we arrogant? Do we look down on anyone around us? Now, let's be honest. Have we been blessed with great things? Do we live in a blessed time? Do we have the truth of God? Should that lead us to thinking we're better than anyone else? Or should that humble us to the ground? Right. What have we received? Or excuse me, what do we have that we have not received? Right. Everything we are, everything we have has been given to us by God. If God chose for whatever perfect purpose he has to give someone else less, is that because we're great? No. No. It's because God chose to do it for himself. We have no place to be high-minded. Self-righteousness, believing that we have it right and everyone else has it wrong, that our opinions are correct and everyone else's are wrong, and that we can look down on them because of their opinions, has no place. Arrogance, inability to serve others, or if you choose to serve others, seeking attention for it. That's high-mindedness. Christianity is defined by meekness and humility. I have a couple quick verses for you. Turn to Romans chapter 12. I want to draw a contrast for you between high-mindedness and true Christianity. Again, I'm just going to use a common phrase that we've probably heard all the time. I'm proud to be an American. What do you have to be proud about? That you were born here? Yay. What did you do to cause that? (laughs) Nothing. You have no room for pride to hold yourself above anyone else. That you're proud of your accomplishments. Well, you know, the Lord opened doors for you and shut others so you end up where you are. You're proud of your income? It can go away in a moment, and it's only because the Lord helped you get there. There's nothing to be proud about. We should be humble. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. God gives different amounts of faith, but it doesn't give us any right whatsoever to look down on anyone else. We should not think of ourselves too highly. Continuing on, verse 10, be kindly affectioned, 
one to another with brotherly love, and in honor, preferring one another. Our focus should not be on ourselves. We are third in that list. It's God, others, and then us. We should prefer everyone else first. And then verse 16, be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things. Don't pretend you're any better. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. If you, let's just be honest, if you have something great, if God has blessed you with a gift, if God has given you knowledge, what should you do with it? Should you sit there and tell everyone else how great you are? No, you should go to those who don't have it and share it. You should condescend, you should step down to those who have less than you and be with them and help them and give them that grace of God. Help them out. Finally, the verse that stood out to me most that as soon as I thought about this is uh, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Let nothing, nothing, be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. God's told us exactly what to do. Our minds are to be lowly, not high. We are not to hold ourselves in high esteem. No matter what the world says about you need more esteem, you need to love yourself more, forget it. Love others more. You love yourself enough. Put yourself in the place where you should be. You should be lowly and everyone else should be higher. Everyone else's things should be more important than yours. Brethren, if nothing else, I hope that these words that you probably haven't heard before have caused you to think a little bit, that you will go and look up this outline. Again, it is a very simple outline. It is broken up very easily. These words, I hope, will help you think about how you're going to live this next year. If you want more, I'd tell you honestly, I picked a couple other really quick words just to read to you that are on this list that you probably, again, have not used. You may not have even heard in your life if you've never heard this series before, but things that are applicable to all of us. Here's a couple other words. Answering again, backbiting, banquetings, concupiscence, defrauding, effeminate, emulation, evil surmising, Froward, gainsaying, malignity, prating, superfluity, variance, and without natural affection. If you lived last year the way that you wanted to, if you pleased God, look at the list and find something that you could do better. If you didn't do well enough last year, if your conscience pricks you that this year should be a better year, look at the list. Find something you can do better. We are armed by the word of God to know how we should live this next year. Let's not let these little sins be forgotten. Let's not let our lives be changed to what the world wants us to be, but what Christ wants us to be. Amen. Please turn with me to Ezra chapter 8. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Amen. 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 
we don't normally go to Ezra. We usually go to his contemporary Nehemiah a little more often. There's some good reasons for that. Um, but I read through Ezra recently, and a couple things jumped out at me. And I thought uh, a few of you may be able to benefit from this little story. It's, a, it's an obscure little story that just is covered in a couple of sentences here in the middle of this chapter. Um, but there's a couple of lessons I think we should draw from it in the context of the rest of Scripture that deals with this particular subject. And there's profit in it. Amen. Amen. See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. That's part of a verse. A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Right. And yet we walk not by sight, but by faith. Uh, so here's, here's my topic for you. When you face a choice that involves risk, what choice do you make in light of a decision, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God, versus walking by faith and ignoring risks? And so you have to make a choice. With many decisions on a daily basis that involve risk, you have to decide whether you're going to proceed in faith with this choice, or should you avoid that choice out of foreseeing the evil and hiding yourself. So usually we have, uh, all of us have a tendency toward one of those options more than the other, and we don't maybe consider very often if we're seeing it the right way. So here's a little story where Ezra encountered a situation involving risk, and it's very interesting to me to see how he reacted to it, and there's learning for us here. What do I, let me define my terms first so that you understand me. To tempt God is to take an unnecessary risk, presuming on God's protection. Right. To take a leap of faith, let's call it a leap of faith for now, is to take a risk, believing in God's protection, which is sort of the same thing, isn't it? So tempting God, my favorite example of that is Jesus when he was tempted by the devil, the devil tempted him to jump off the pinnacle of the temple, right. believing in God's protection. And Jesus answered, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So it would have been a sin for Jesus to jump off of the pinnacle of the temple. Uh, my favorite example of taking a leap of faith is Jonathan and his armor bearer yes. taking on a garrison of the Philistines, which was totally unpro unprovoked by them, and totally unnecessary in the context of God's commandments. But they did it, and it was the right choice. And it involved risk. Okay, let's, let's go straight to Ezra chapter 8. I'll read you the little story, and then we'll comment on it. I'm going to start in verse 21 of Ezra chapter 8. But you need to know the context first. So this is at the end of the Babylonian captivity. Cyrus has given the commandment to go back and rebuild Jerusalem already. And most of that work to rebuild the temple has already been done. Uh, but what's happening now in Ezra chapter 8 is Ezra has gone back to the king to ask for more resources. He got everything he asked for. And now he's been given an enormous amount of money only it's not, unfortunately, paper money. 
to take from Babylon back to Jerusalem for more offerings and more projects with the temple. And so I, I just want you to understand, it just says, uh, just a few hundred talents of silver, a hundred talents of gold, and some vessels. They just had to carry him to Babylon. It sounds very simple when it's described quickly in Ezra chapter 8, but you have to understand this. So including the vessels, there were 750 talents of silver. And I would have thought a talent was like a coin, and so you just had to have 750 coins, but it's not. A talent, a Babylonian talent, is 67 pounds. So, and then there were 100 talents of gold, and there were some gold vessels, and uh, there was 1,000 drams of gold vessels, and, and a couple copper vessels that it says was as valuable as gold. Uh, but 1,000 drams is a fraction of one talent, so I didn't count that. So uh, in total, not counting the drams, there's 850 talents of silver and gold together, which is over 57,000 pounds. So this is, this is close to the, the payload weight of an 18-wheeler that they had to carry with, I assume, mules, horses, camels, yep. wagons, etc., all the way from Babylon to Jerusalem, which is, I think, something like 500 miles, and it took him four months. So here's the problem that Ezra was facing. They were sitting ducks. They didn't have any protection. They were going something like four miles per day in this four-month journey. And they had, in today's dollars, about $136 million in assets carried on the backs of camels and on wagons, and they're pulling it through the desert. And they have nothing. They have no protection. They're a bunch of priests. So uh, I hope that gives you an idea of how big of a problem this was. It wasn't just, oh, let's take on a garrison of Philistines. It was, we have $136 million of the king of Persia's money that he just entrusted to us. We weighed it in Babylon, and we're going to weigh it again in Jerusalem to make sure it's all there. And he expects it to be used for the service of God. Uh, okay, verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. For I was ashamed to require the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way. Because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. But his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our God for this. And he was entreated for us. Amen. And I'll skip down to verse 31 to reinforce that conclusion. Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and of such as lay in wait by the way. And we came to Jerusalem and lived there three days. So what can we learn from this? See, this sounds very simple, but it wasn't simple at all. What can we learn? Even a ready scribe in the law of God like Ezra encountered dilemmas like this. Ezra did not know 
at the time, whether he was tempting God or if he was taking a leap of faith. That's the very interesting thing to me here. He didn't know, and so what did he do? And we can learn from this. He covered that unknown, that gray area, with fasting and prayer. Amen. Good. If you have exhausted God's ordinary means of decision-making, which are his word and wise counselors, and the right decision is still unclear, and it involves risk, fasting and prayer is a legitimate way to cover yourself. And another interesting point I want you to notice here is that Ezra brings out the reputation of God as part of the reason why he does not want to take the means of protection that he could have had. Right. If he had gone back to the king and asked for reinforcement, he probably would have gotten it if he explained the risk that he was undergoing, that he was undertaking. But he didn't want to do it. What does he say? He says, For I was ashamed to require the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way. Because when he was with the king, he had just preached a message to the king of Persia and said, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. And so he didn't want to go back and say, Now we need this natural carnal means of protecting ourselves. We know the Lord is going to protect us, but we're not that sure, and so please send some soldiers with us. He didn't want to do it. He was ashamed. Okay, so this are we learning something from this obscure story that I never heard before? It's buried in Ezra chapter 8, and there's learning for us here. So, when you encounter situations that involve risk, it's important. There are verses on both sides. There's verses telling us to foresee the evil and hide ourselves, and there's verses to support uh, taking a leap of faith. And so it's important that you walk circumspectly, not as a fool, and you ask yourself which one you're doing. And you have a foundation for why you're making the choice that you're making. That's one thing. And then we also, in gray areas where there's not a clear answer, what's the right way, fasting and prayer, and preferring the protection of God's reputation, what would give him the most glory. That's something, apparently, we learn from the story that God prefers. So, the Lord bless us. And it came to pass, as Jesus went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that, as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God, and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said to him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. 
My purpose today is simple. Are you one of the nine? Or are you the one? Do you give God thanks? Are you thankful for things or do you give God thanks? So let's consider this. I have two simple points. One, why should we give God thanks according to the Bible? And two, we'll look at some personal reasons in our own lives why we can give God thanks and that we can thank him for. So why should we give God thanks from the Bible? Well, we're commanded to. That's simple enough. The psalmist says in Psalm 50, Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High. There we have. That should be good enough. Let's pack it up and go. Give more thanks. Okay, but I have a few more reasons, okay? <clears throat> Another uh, reason the psalmist gives, uh, I have two, two references to, is to make his deeds known among the people. The psalmist says in 105, O give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. How better can he make his deeds known than by giving him thanks for the things he's done? The psalmist also says in Psalm 35, I will give thanks, I will give thee thanks in the great congregation. I will praise thee among much people. I'm speaking to myself probably most of all, but what better place to give thanks in front of a bunch of people than right here? Another point, what else should we thank God for? For delivering us from our enemies. In this context, it's a violent man, but we have our own enemies, and we have lots of them, even if they're not people, per se. Let me read you Psalm 18. He delivereth me from mine enemies. Yea, thou liftest me up above those that rise up against me. Thou hast delivered me from the violent man. Therefore will I give thanks unto thee, O Lord. Why else? Because the Lord is a great God and a king above all gods. The psalmist says in Psalm 95, Let us come before him, his presence with thanksgiving, and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Another reason to give him thanks. The Lord is good and merciful. Please ye the Lord, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. How has he been good to you? We heard a number of reasons or examples this morning from in this morning's sermon. What has he done specifically in your life that you can give him praise for, for him being good and merciful to you? How about Jesus Christ's deliverance from sin and death? In Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What about his unspeakable gift of salvation to us? In 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. It's unspeakable. <laughs> what about Christ's victory over death in the grave? In 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So we've just seen a number of spiritual reasons from the Bible for which we should give thanks to God. But what about in our own personal lives, us carnally, financially, or in other areas? And I'd like to use as a segue, a segue verse, 2 Corinthians 9.11, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. In other words, give God thanks for everything you have, because he's given us a lot. So I'd like to pose a few questions, a few examples, and see what you think, uh, whether or not you should give thanks for these things. I have a question for you. 
How often do you feel strong and healthy, get out of bed, and don't even think about your physical strength and health during the day? Should you give God thanks for that? Amen. When was the last time you were sick? And when you were sick, were you thankful for all the days that you weren't sick? Can you hear? Can you see? Can you speak? Can you stand and walk? Or do you need a wheelchair? How often does the Lord protect you on the roads that we take it for granted? Do you enjoy water every day? Is it clean water? 750 million people lack adequate access to clean drinking water. That's a tenth of the Earth's population. Do you have electricity? Is it cheap? One out of every four people lives without electricity. One out of every four, that's 25%. When was the last time you went hungry because you didn't have enough food? Is food cheap? Three billion people live on $2.50 a day or less. More than 1.2 billion people live in extreme poverty on less than a dollar and 25 cents a day. When was the last time you spent a buck 25 on a stick of gum? Seriously, what do we have to complain about? In developing countries, the poor population spend between 60 and 80 percent of their income on food. We spend less than 10, less than 10 percent. How long does it take to make a loaf of bread, make the money to buy a loaf of bread here? Almost nothing. What do we have to complain about? Right. Is the food that you eat healthy? Is it sanitary and clean? Three million children die every year from malnutrition. And whether that's not getting enough food or poor food conditions and unsanitary, what do we have to complain about? Amen. Here's a good one. Can you read and write? Can you read and write? Nearly one billion people entered the 21st century unable to read or write. How else can you know about God without being able to read or write? Right. In line with that, can you speak or understand English? I hope you can. <laughs> <laughs> At most, one out of every three people can understand English at most as a second language being considered. That means two out of every three people don't have access to the King James Bible in English. How blessed are we that we can read and write in English? Right. Here's another good one. Do you understand baptism and the proper mode of baptism? As we've been over with our pastor, you're now in a very elite minority. Right. You're now one out of 500 plus people just because you understand the mode of baptism. Has Christ died for your sins? Are you thankful for this? Amen. Do you have an eternal inheritance prepared for you? Are you thankful for this? Yes. To sum it up and wrap up in conclusion, I have a question. I've had a few. What should you not be thankful for? Be careful. Nothing. You should not be thankful for nothing. You should be thankful for everything. Right. Paul gives us in 1 Thessalonians 5 what I hope we take away from this small presentation. In everything, give thanks. Right. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I've just told you the will of God. No magical, mysterious feeling has come upon us. 
You just need to give thanks. That's God's will. May the Lord bless us to not be the nine and to be that one. Amen. I'm taking snippets from two sermons that were preached in May of 2010 called Greatness in the Sight of the Lord. I hope these few minutes I give you today will inspire you to strive to be great in the sight of the Lord and to listen to these sermons or both. Thank you, God, for your precious word. All scripture is given by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Every word of God is pure. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1. When Abraham was ninety years old and nine, the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Abraham had walked before God for many years before Genesis 17.1. But God came to him again to renew that personal relationship that he had with Abraham. The Lord comes to us this Sunday by this text and others to renew his relationship with us and that we should walk before him and be perfect. Amen. We have a hall of faith in Hebrews 11, and it lists the elders of Israel and their great faith and the things that they did by faith. And Abraham has more verses dedicated to him than any other man in the hall of faith. When we turn the page to Genesis chapter 18, we find Abraham doing what most of you men are doing. And what the rest of you men that are not doing yet, we hope and trust shall be doing soon. And that is being a father and a leader of his household. In Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19, the same God that appeared to him in 17.1 said about him in verse 19, For I know him. Praise God. Does God know you like this? For I know him. God is speaking to himself. I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. My brethren, today a simple message springing from Genesis 17.1, and that is the emphasis that the Bible places on us giving our very best to be the very best in following and serving God. That when we walk before God and when we seek to find ourselves perfect before Him, that we do it with our might. Mm -hmm. This is what the Lord expects. This is taught in both Testaments, and we want to learn that lesson today. Abraham is one of those witnesses in Hebrews chapter 11 that Hebrews chapter 12 tells us are sitting in the stadium of life watching us. When the Bible says that we have a great cloud of witnesses, it means that you are on a quarter mile track in a stadium and all the illustrious elders of the Old Testament are sitting in the bleachers. And it's just a cloud of faces because that's all you can distinguish from a distance of being down in the field. Abraham is one of those faces and those witnesses, and we want to be a father like Abraham. Abraham didn't have a little household like you have. Abraham had 318 servants that were trained for battle. 
so that when the four kings came and took his nephew Lot captive, he was able to arm his 318 trained servants in pursuit of those four kings, and with God's blessing, defeat the four kings and bring back Lot, his wife, his children, and all that he possessed. That's a big household. But God knew one thing about Abraham and his household. No matter how large, they're going to keep the way of the Lord or he would have thrown them out. May we be as dedicated. Amen. Let's go to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7, 12 through 17. Our brother Paul is exhorting us to follow the great men of scriptures. That's in Philippians chapter 3. David would say it like this in Psalm 37, 37. Mark the perfect man, for the end of that man is peace. Philippians 3. We want to find the great men of Scripture and set them as our examples to follow. Our beloved brother Paul would say in Philippians 3 and verse 17, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so, as you have us for an example. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 tells the brethren in Philippi, I want you, together as a united church, to follow me, just like he told the Corinthians in Corinthians 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be ye followers of me, even as I am a follower of Jesus Christ. How did Paul live? Paul would say, Not as though I had already attained. Now he's already in prison at this time. This is toward the end of his life, and he says, Not as though I had already attained. We would say, Paul, you have attained a great deal. He would say, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. But I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul is describing the Lord Jesus Christ arresting him and apprehending him, getting his attention and committing him and putting him to the work of preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul did that. And Paul knew that he had been apprehended for that work, but he did not believe that he had apprehended it yet. He hadn't finished his work. He had not fully fulfilled his purpose in the world, and he was committed to pressing on. So he says, I count not myself to have obtained. You may think something highly of me, but I do not. Right. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, those are the good things that he's done, I press for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I press. There is a mark. It's called a finish line. They draw a string and hold it over the finish line, the exact distance of the race, and the runners that want to win are pressing toward that mark. They are leaning forward and driving with all their might. The Apostle Paul was not going to relax in his race until he finished his course. Only then could he say, I have finished my course. We have a course, and we want to do it our best, and we want to do it like the Apostle Paul. Here he is using running as a metaphor and a comparison of our Christian lives. Paul uses the metaphor again with the Corinthians. Greatness in the sight of the Lord. That is what we want here. That is what we want to set our goal for. We do not want to relax and be ordinary, average, mediocre Christians We want to be ambitious and pressing toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The man who touches the string first gets the prize. 
The Apostle Paul will not settle for anything than less than the best. Listen to how he writes in, in 1 Corinthians 9. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So he's writing to the Corinthians. Don't you know about the Olympic Games, Corinthians? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. This is the Apostle Paul describing greatness in the sight of God that he had set for a goal of his own life. He first of all asks you, don't you understand what happens in a race? If it's an eight-lane track and it's a sprint, there are eight runners that run. All eight run, but only one gets the price because second place is to lose. And that's how the Apostle Paul looked at his Christian life. Mm -hmm. So run I. That's the way I should run. We want to learn this and we want to press towards the mark in our Christian life. You fathers, God has given you a race. It's an endurance race. It doesn't get over in one day, a week, or a year. It's an endurance race. Where are the excellent fathers that don't get discouraged and quit? Don't you know that they which run a race run all? Everyone that's in the race runs, but only one gets the prize, and that's the way you should run. Each one of you fathers should strive to be the best in this entire church. This is what the Word of God tells us the Apostle Paul did. He did not settle for mediocrity. He pressed for excellence. You may say, not everyone can win, but you can run like it. And that's the whole issue. How do you run your race? In the sight of God, everyone can race. Everyone can win, excuse me. Let me remind you that the man with five talents... That's the man that could run a sub four-minute mile. And the man who has two talents, and that's the man that can run the mile in ten minutes. The man that runs a sub four-minute mile can literally have lunch before the man that runs his ten-minute mile finishes the race. But what do they both hear from the God of heaven? Well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. God knows the abilities he's given you, and he doesn't care about the differences between you and someone else. Right. He just wants to know that with the abilities he's given you and the opportunities he's given you, you are running your race all out. That you take what he's given you and you multiply it. That you apply yourself diligently. That is the word of the Lord to us today. When God looks at you, what does God say to himself? Let's diligently strive to hear the words that were said about Abraham. I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord. The Lord does say this to us today. I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Amen. Amen. I also want to thank Brother Eric for what he's done today. And what he'll also do next week. You see, brethren, 
whatever you're called to do, as my triple brother just said, that's what we ought to be diligently doing. We've had, well, seven of us get up and actively talk about something from Scripture today. We've had another brother who's done the same service in leading music for us today. I am thankful to be in a congregation where the Lord has, has provided gifts. And notice, I always love these events, just looking at what was covered by Brother Bryant, what was covered by Matthew, what was covered by Jonathan, what was covered by Mark, and what Stephen just gave us. Different subject matter, but it all connects together. It's all what we need to do to serve the Lord. All encouraging us, challenging us to be better Christians. None of us got together and planned. There was no meeting two weeks ago that said, well, you know, Stephen, this would be a good passage of Scripture for you to handle. And Matthew, why don't you take this? And Bryant, we know you enjoy that, so no. Everything that ties together because the Lord was here in our midst. The Lord was enlightening each and every one of us, guiding our emotions, guiding our desires, helping us to bring forth something that's to the blessing of all. Let's be thankful for this, and let's take home these challenges, these encouragements that we have, and again, make sure that we're better Christians in 2017 than we've been in 2016, that we are running our race effectively. Thank you, brothers, for your contributions. Let's all stand and be dismissed. And one more reminder, we'll have five more brothers in the second service next week and Brother Jim Cutler in the first service who will be doing the same thing, bringing us things from the Word of God. Let's be in prayer for them that we be as blessed or more so from, this, from next Sunday as we have been from this one. Amen. Our good Father in heaven, we are so very thankful for your one more time showing us just how kind and good and loving you are to us. Lord, we've had so many things presented to us from all these different sources. We are thankful, Lord, that you rule over the affairs of men, that you rule over our hearts, Father, and that you have provided this wealth of spiritual blessings for us this day. Help us, Lord. Let us not let any crumb be dropped to the ground. Help us, Lord, that we would take forth these things, think about them, contemplate them, and, Lord, that we would apply them to our lives so that we can be that people that you want, that people that is zealous for good works. Lord, dismiss us now with your blessing. Help us that we can be your children and that we can walk in close fellowship with you this day. And if you grant it tomorrow and the day after and the day after. For we ask these things in the glorious name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.